Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right, good morning, everybody. We are going to uh, go ahead and begin. It's a pleasure to be back with you, and I uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate Tom Collier filling in uh, last Sunday morning. And uh, we are going to continue our discussion of developing and building a biblical worldview. Um, you know, and I, and I realize <clears throat> that it is, you know, the, this topic can be uh, somewhat of a, uh, of a, of a catch-all topic. And I don't mean that, I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, you know, meaning that we could, you know, we could fill, you know, a month of Sundays, um, with topics that would, um, align with, you know, what does the Bible say about fill in the blank? And we'll get, and we'll get to some of those, you know, and, and certainly this morning's, this morning's lesson, uh, that Glenn, uh, that Glenn shared with us is a, is a great example of, how our speech should be filtered through that biblical worldview, right? Um, and I use, I use that word filter on purpose because that is, that is my favorite word when I think about what, what a biblical worldview is, but also how a biblical worldview should be applied. Um, and um, from my understanding, you know, Tom gave us a great, a great example, you know, last week of, of how we approach work right, with a, with a biblical worldview. So, you know, as we go through the, as we go through the quarter, Lord willing, we will be looking at several different topics and, and filtering those topics through a biblical worldview. But as we continue to kind of set <clears throat> the foundation, um, what I want to what I want to discuss with you and, and offer are um, what I consider foundational verses for a a biblical worldview. If we're gonna if we're gonna build that up and we're gonna have a worldview that is based on the scriptures, all right? Well. What, where, where, do, where do we start with that? How would we, how would we, you know, build that up in our own minds and in our own hearts and also help to build that up in the hearts of our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our colleagues, our coworkers, all of that. In other words, you know, what, what is, where does this biblical worldview come from? What should it include? All of these things. So now I'm quick to say that none of this I would consider exhaustive. And I'm sure all of us, if we sat down with pen and paper and started making a list of foundational verses, fundamental, fundamental scriptures, fundamental passages of scripture that are essential to a biblical worldview, I'm sure that our lists might be somewhat different, but I would also think that there would be some, some commonality in that as well. So we're going to start literally at the beginning um, with Genesis 1.1. Um, in the, you know, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That is the beginning of a biblical worldview. And it's not just a convenient place to start. It's not just an easiest, easy or obvious place to start. We have to begin to accept God for who he is, right? And who he says he is, right? So the, and the connection and, there is significance to that because the connection between establishing 
the very first verse of the Scriptures and everything else we are to believe about God cannot be um, underestimated, right? So um, there, uh, some of you are familiar probably with uh, a group called the Barna Group. Um, the Barna Group is um, primarily focused on faith-based research, okay? Um, research, you know, just surveying um, the, you know, the current landscape, if you will, of those that consider themselves to be Christians. Um, and, you know, they, they were recently, there's, there's a book, there's a book called You Lost Me, uh, and it was written by one of the one of the main Barna Group researchers, and it's basically a collection of data, collection of their research on why um, specifically young people, ages from about eighteen to thirty one, about why they leave the church, why they leave the faith, I should say, in general, because um, you know, the, let me be clear that you know the Barna Group is not a is not a church based organization as we identify the church, but just in a, um, in a largely more um, overall Christendom area, um, looking at why young people leave, leave their faith, and specifically ages, ages 18 to 31. Um, but as part of that, part of their survey, they surveyed students um, that regularly attended Bible classes growing up. Okay, so I'm going to read you just a few of these, a few of these statistics. And I know statistics are boring, but I, I promise, I promise they have a point. Okay, so among students who regularly grew up attending Bible class, those students were more likely not to believe that all accounts and stories in the Bible are true or accurate. They were more likely to doubt the Bible because it is written by men and has errors in the translating, according to them. Students that regularly attend Bible classes growing up were more likely to accept that gay marriage and abortion should be legal. Students that attended Bible classes regularly were much more likely to believe that God used evolution to change one kind of animal into another. Those same students were more likely not to believe that the earth is less than 10,000 years old. And they were more likely to believe that dinosaurs died before people on the planet. And they were more likely to believe that good people don't need to go to church. Now I can see I can see Lewis's face, and that's the face that we all have. That like it's one of these. Wait, like how how can that be? These are students, according to the research. These are students that grew up going to Bible class regularly, and but at the same time they are less likely to take the Bible. And this is my this is my summary. They are less likely to take the Bible for what it says. Well, how does, how does that happen? Well, Kevin Kane, uh, writing for Apologetics Press, says, what we begin to see from these important findings in the Barna study is a significant correlation between believing in the creation account and whether they will remain faithful to God or whether they will come back to the church. There is a direct tie between what they believe about Genesis and their attitude toward Christianity. The conclusion here is painfully obvious. If the authority of God's word is undermined in Genesis, this leads to a slippery slope of unbelief about the whole of the Bible. And I agree very, very strongly with that, that if we cannot accept the very first verse of the Bible as true, as the truth, then it begins to call into question everything else that comes after that.
It is extremely, extremely important for us to understand that Genesis 1 is telling us the truth, right? And we're going to get to, you know, we're going to get to the inspiration of the scriptures and that we know that the scriptures, that all of the scriptures are true, but we have to start here. There is a, uh, call it an argument, call it a debate, call it whatever you will, about whether or not, uh, and some of you have probably heard of this and some of you may, I'm, I'm sure, know more about it than I do. Okay, there's a there's a there's a debate or a conversation or an argument over whether the first eleven books of Genesis should be taken figuratively or literally, right? So, what? Why? Why would? And this is this is the point where I'm asking questions. All those from those in the north county of the auditorium to the south county of the auditorium, way over there. Um, why? Why would there be a debate? Why would there be a debate about the first eleven verses, or the first eleven chapters of Genesis? They are. They are such extraordinary events. Excellent. What else? Yes, sir. Okay, if you don't believe the first eleven books, comment that was said. If you don't believe the first eleven books, you don't believe you have to live a certain way. Yes, sir. Excellent. For those, uh, for those that might not have been able to hear the comment, especially those uh, possibly listening at home, basically it comes down to a rejection of any accountability, if that is a fair su- summation. It's, it's a realization that if I accept that, then it calls me to accept my own responsibility based on what the Word, what the word says. Glenn. Right, exactly. So the comment was it, 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 it rejects Christ because Jesus himself refers back to um, refers back to you know uh, Genesis as well, and you know and that that you know it's it's interesting. Glenn is obviously reading my notes because that that is a point that that um, you know we have obvious evidence of you know Jesus referencing Genesis as true, not myth, not fable, not legend. Okay. Um, you know, Genesis one twenty seven says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Matthew 19, as Glenn just referenced, 4 through 6. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay? Cindy. I was hoping that would come up, but there's so much science, right? There's so much science that said, well, how can, how can any of this be, be real, right? Hold on to that. Tom. Into human ego. It's easier to say that's figurative than to say we're wrong. Absolutely. It's easier, Tom said, it's easier to say that's figurative, figurative than to say we're wrong. What this is rooted in is a rejection of the supernatural. Bottom line. Okay? It is a rejection of the supernatural. And we have a, it's easy for us to reject the supernatural. Why? Because we're natural. <laughs> because we don't, we don't fully and can't fully understand how an almighty God created everything we see in six literal days. We can believe it, but that doesn't mean we completely understand how it happens. Right? Because we, we can't. We don't, we don't have the capacity. But 
I want to challenge, when this comes up, when you think about, well, the first 11 chapters, as, as Brother Ede said, contains some fantastical events. And we're not going to argue that, because the creation, you know, in six days, that is a fantastical event, among others. The worldwide flood is a fantastical event. But the first 11 chapters seems kind of arbitrary to me. Because why stop if we're, if we're rejecting, if we're, je- if we're rejecting the supernatural creation of everything we know in six days? If we're rejecting the fantastical idea of a worldwide flood, because, well, that can't happen, right? But why, why stop? Why stop there? Chapter 11 seems kind of, because there are plenty of supernatural fantastical events that occur long after. So if we're going to reject the supernatural in the first, in the first 11 chapters, why, why don't we reject other supernatural events? Why don't, we, why don't we reject Lot's wife being turned to a pillar of salt? Why don't we reject all of the miracles recorded in Exodus? Or the axe head floating? Or the donkey speaking? Or all, and then eventually, what you have to do is what? You know what? You see where I'm going with this, right? We have to reject the resurrection. If we, if we, if we can't accept that the supernatural happened, then we have to reject all. The very, the very Bible that you're holding is the result of a supernatural, un, more than natural, right? More than natural, miraculous thing. So that's why we have to start with Genesis 1-1, because it is the foundation that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is one of those building blocks that has to be there. That when we build our biblical worldview, right, and you can call it, you can call it the wall, you know, you can call it the filter, you can call it the foundation or whatever, but we're going to need we're going to need those foundational things that we hold on to that we know that we know that we know are true when everything else around us causes us to question, causes us to struggle, right? I call them handles, for lack of a, for lack of a better word, right? Then when the boat gets rocky and the ground starts to kind of shake a little bit, we've got to have something to hold on to that we know that we know that we know. And these are those foundational things, right? And think about where, you know, when we, when we talk about just, just in the first chapter of Genesis, you know, I mentioned Genesis 127. So God created man in his image. In the, Im- in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You realize just, just within however long it takes us to read the first, the first chapter of Genesis, just in that short amount of time, how counterculture we already are, Right? Again, all of the science, all of the science, never mind all of the culture that is screaming right now in direct opposition to what verse 28 says about God creating male and female, that just within a few seconds, within a few seconds of beginning to build our worldview, we are completely different than the world around us. Right? So let's not, let's not dis, and, and nobody would, but let's not dismiss 
how important the very first verse of the Bible really, really is. That God is God, He is real, and He is who He says He is, and He has done what He has said He would do, right? It's very, very, very important, okay? So, that's the first building block, that God is God. It has to start, it has to start there. Immediately following, immediately following after that is that Jesus is God. John 1-1, our next building block, John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Very quickly after that, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, if we accept that God is God, okay, and we start with that Genesis 1-1 foundation, then very quickly after that, we see that Jesus is God. Let us, right, let us make man in our image, okay? John 1, again, identifying that Jesus is God. He cannot be just a good teacher, a good man. Well, he was, you know, he was a historical figure. And, you know, there, you know, most of, you know, to use a word that Cindy used, to, most of academia, you know, recognizes that Jesus was a man that actually existed, right? But they are very quick to limit him to that status. Again, because as was mentioned, if we, if we elevate him to anything else, then that calls into question our own responsibility and our accountability to that, right? But he cannot, and you know, some of us may be familiar with, with C.S. Lewis, uh, his summation of the, the liar, lunatic, or Lord, um, that he's either one of those three, that Jesus was either a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was in fact the Lord. Because someone claiming, someone claiming to be who he was, okay? So you have this man named Jesus who is claiming to be Lord. Well, he either knew that that was not true, and he said it anyway, which makes him a liar. He either was not Lord, but actually believed he was, which makes him a lunatic, or the only other option is that he was who he says he was. Right? That he was actually Lord. You cannot, you cannot regu- regulate, relegate, that's the word. Whew. You cannot relegate Jesus to just a good man. Okay? You cannot do that. He is, he is God. So once we get there, we realize that again, God is God. We see that Jesus is God. And all of that, all of that that comes from everything we know about Jesus in the Gospels to be true. And then it follows that the Holy Spirit is God. These three, these three things, okay? And, you know, the, the concept of the Trinity, um, again, is one of those that we can talk about it and we can, we can come up with analogy after analogy after analogy, but our natural human minds are not going to be able to plumb the depth of, of what that is. But we know, we know that God is God, we know that Jesus is God, and we know the Holy Spirit is God. Now, why? Because one of the, one of the big things that, that I want us to understand as we go through this is, why is that important? We talked about, talked about why it's so important to understand that, that God is who he says he is, that, that God has done what he said he would do. Why is it important? Why is it important to understand that Jesus is God? 
Before we move on to the Holy Spirit, why is it so important to understand that Jesus is God? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. He is part of the Godhead that let us, implying plural, but yet Deuteronomy clearly teaching the hero Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Excellent. Okay. So Jesus is God. He brings the authority of God. If he is just a man, then where does that, where does that leave, where does that leave Christianity? Well, it's where it leaves everything else. It leaves us lost. Right? It leaves us, it leaves us lost. Right? And again, understanding that means that I have a responsibility because I'm accountable to that. If he is God, then I am, I am accountable to him. I am accountable to his teachings. I am accountable to submitting to his will. Right? And, as we mentioned, the Holy Spirit is God. Now turn over to Acts chapter 5. And, and I want you to think about, as, as we're setting the stage, for why this part of our foundation would be so important. Why is it so important to understand and to add to our foundation of biblical worldview that the Holy Spirit is God? So, in, uh, in Acts chapter 5, we, we're, we're familiar with Acts chapter 5. If you're, if you're, not, um, if you're not familiar, you notice the account of, of Ananias and Sapphira, right? They had, uh, they had a, a parcel of land and they wanted the, you know, the accolades that everyone else was giving. You know, people were selling their, selling the land, selling their possessions, um, giving to the church, you know, to help the, help the, you know, the, the beginnings, you know, get on their feet to meet the needs and, and all that. They had a parcel of land. They sold that parcel of land. Um, they kept a portion of the profit from that land, um, which so far so good, right? So far so good. Nothing wrong with them selling that land. Nothing wrong with them keeping a portion of the prophets for themselves, right? But their mistake was letting everyone believe and telling everyone that this is everything, this is everything that we've, that, that we've made from the sale of that land. So Acts 5, beginning in verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart till the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? So again, this, this, this was yours to do. Just a side note. This was yours to do with whatever you wanted to do with it. Okay? You were under no obligation to sell it. So don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus was a communist, right? Or a socialist and, you know, promoted communism and all, and all this stuff. The early church promoted it. No. Peter very clearly, like, this was yours. This belonged to you. You could have done with it whatever you wanted to, including doing nothing with it, right? And then you sold it, and then after you sold it, the profits were all yours. You could have done everything you wanted, you know, whatever you wanted to with it. But let's continue. Back in verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So in two very short phrases, in two very short verses, right? Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then very quickly after that, he says, you have not lied to men, but you lied to God. Okay? In other words, if you will, in this passage, using God and the Holy Spirit interchangeably, how can you do that? How can you, how can you get away with that? How can you, how can you, you know, just 
randomly say the Holy Spirit and then say, well, it's because the Holy Spirit is God. Right? Part of, you know, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, there's no S on that, right? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? One name. One name. God is God. Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. Okay? So, yeah, like, Keith, we get that. Appreciate you. Good class. Right? Why is that important? Why is it so important to establish, to establish the Trinity? And again, I am not going to teach a class on the Trinity because that's deeper water than I can swim in this morning, right? But we understand it, okay? At least to the point of, of knowing that God is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, okay? But why is that the foundation of a biblical worldview? Or what, what benefit is that to the foundation of a biblical worldview? In other words, why does it matter that, that, that we establish that the Holy Spirit is God? But, exactly. You've got to have the foundation right. Where does the Holy Spirit fit in that as far as the Holy Spirit is God? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a, there's a, there's a consistency. Okay, there's a consistency that brings it out. Um, you know, there, there's also, there's also a, a, a an idea out there that you know we'll call it, for lack of a better description, I'm, I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it the red letter idea. Right? That's mine. I just made that up. You like that? If you want to use it, feel free. Okay. Um, but the red letter idea, meaning in short, that the words of Jesus carry the real weight. Right? That all the other writings are good, and you know the rest of the New Testament is uh, is 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 worth having, but the red letters. The words of Jesus are really the important part, right? Okay. Um, years ago, um, and some of you may some of you may remember this, um, but there was a uh, there was a congregation that had chosen to ordain a female minister, and I'm not I'm not talking about the 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 big hubbub. I don't know if you've I don't know if you've heard about this, but the big hubbub and the schism in the uh, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, they just had a you know a couple of weeks ago. They just had a big old vote on whether or not they were going to uh, keep congregations within the SBC that uh, ordained female uh, female ministers. Okay, not talking about the SBC. I'm talking about congregation in the Lord's Church. This was you know a few years ago, and the um, one of the main. I think I think this person. If I remember correctly, I think this person was um, the 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 head the head preacher, um, whatever whatever that congregation particularly called it. But this person said, "I don't read." Let me get it right. He said, "I don't read Jesus through Paul." He said, "I read Paul through Jesus." And I thought, "Wow, you know what? Like that sounds really really fluffy, and really really like I have no idea what that means." <laughs> Right? I knew what his point was, though. Right? His point was what I'm calling the red letter idea. Was that, well, you know, Jesus' words carry way more weight. And I need to, you know, and then, you know, if, if Paul says something that, that, I'm, that, that might, not be, might not be popular, well, I'm just going to put that over here in another category. Right? We see, we see why that's important. We see why that's important. Right? And why am I talking about all of this with an understanding that 
we have to accept that the Holy Spirit is God. Well, if we don't, if we can't, if we don't accept and believe and add to our foundational biblical worldview that the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is God, then it calls into question what role the the the, the entire New Testament and really, for that matter, the, enti- the all of the Scripture. Because how did we get all the Scripture? Right, Second Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture has been what? Right, God breathed. Right, God breathed. Right, the Holy Spirit is how we have that supernatural, miraculous thing that we call a Bible that we just talked about earlier, right? So it, all, it calls all of that into question. So God is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God, right? And all of those, all of those have to be securely in place to get us to the point to realize our fourth building block is that the Bible is divinely inspired, in other words, it has earned the right, so to speak, of placing our worldview on it. Right? It has earned the right. It can bear the weight of our biblical worldview. Right? So turn to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is, um, I, 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 I love this sentence, and it's two verses, and I love this sentence, um, not because it's 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 popular. I know it's one of our it's one of our go-to verses, and it absolutely should be. It absolutely should be. Um, I don't want us to. Well, you know, again, well, that's that's obvious. Of course, you're going to go to Second Timothy. Yeah, yeah, I am because I love the absoluteness of it. Right? When we talk about a biblical worldview, I would submit that a good summation of that is this passage. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love that because it's absolute. Okay? That statement is either true or it is false. There is no room for my interpretation, there is no room for, well, you know, maybe, is it, is it, I mean, do I have to do everything that, like, all scripture, all scripture, look at the, look at the big words in that, all, and I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, all scripture, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, it's absolute, that is either a true statement or not, and, you know, it's, you could almost set this up and the, and what I what I've enjoyed recently is is kind of is kind of getting in and digging in and 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 dissecting this verse as if it's a debate topic, right? And I know Glenn would appreciate this, but you could almost just say resolved. All Scripture is given by inspiration, and that and and then work through that. Okay, so you know you you look at things like you know there there are questions. There are questions that have, that, that have come up. Well, does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 refer only to the Old Testament Scripture? Well, you know, because, I mean, you know, when you know, Paul is writing to Timothy, he writes to Timothy and says that um, he sees a faith in him uh, that came from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Did I get those in the right order? I always get those. Okay, grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, okay? 
how he's known as a, as a young child of the scriptures, right? And all of this, right? Well, again, this is not the only passage that speaks to the inspiration of the scriptures. If we wanted to talk about this and talk about, well, you know, but as you, as we read, as we read, and we're going to, we're going to look at, uh, at another passage of Paul's writing in just a minute, but flip a, flip a couple pages over to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter one. You know, I, I, I've had, you know, years ago, I, I, I had this question pop in my head. Did the, did the New Testament writers know what they were writing? Right? Now think about that for a second. Did the New Testament writers know what they were writing was what we consider the scriptures? Or were, did they think they were just writing letters? Well, again, one of the rules of this class, if I didn't say it a couple of weeks ago, one of the rules of this class is every spiritual question has to be met with a scriptural answer. Right? So, the more we, the more we dig in, the more we realize the Bible, the Bible does answer that. So, Second Peter, Second Peter, chapter one, beginning in verse twenty. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse twenty-one: For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to look, and I'm going to, I'm going to tap over there with you real quick. If if you'll look just a few verses previous. To that, and of course, my my iPad is going to fail me. But look, just glance through verses sixteen through nineteen. What is Peter talking about? Okay. Speaking of being a witness to the transfiguration, right? We see that, and then in verse nineteen, he says, "And so we have the prophetic word confirmed." That's the New King James. Let me, let, me, let me read to you a couple of different translations. Okay? The King James says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. The ESV, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The ASV, and we have the word of prophecy made more sure. Young's literal translation, and we have more firm the prophetic word. You have to realize that the point that Peter is writing about here is even though we saw with our own eyes Jesus being transfigured, we saw that with our own eyes, we have something more sure than even our own eyewitness account, and that is the word the Holy Spirit has inspired us to write. Okay, That prophetic word, that prophetic word, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. In other words, we're not just writing what we think would be good for you to hear. Okay? Prophecy never came by the will of man, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So that question again about, well, well, did Paul think the Scriptures just referred to the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, we see... In 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, referencing Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. But also that verse continues on, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. What is Paul referencing there? Well, those, those are the words of Jesus, right? Luke 10 and verse 7, calling both of those quotations scripture. And the Latin word, the Latin word, why don't I get in Latin? 
The Greek word for scripture is graphe, G-A-R-P-H-E. And forgive me if I did not pronounce that word correctly. But that Greek word is always, always translated scripture, right? And again, we see the equating of Old Testament and New Testament quotes, quotations, as scripture. Yes, sir? Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. Uh, the comment about, about Jesus, you know, Jesus being very clear. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I will send the helper to you, and the helper will guide you into all truth. He said, there is more that I have to tell you, but you cannot bear it right now. Okay? So the helper is going to come, and the helper is going to guide you into all truth. So just with that statement, Jesus says, according to this red letter idea, this is not all of it. This is not all of it. There is more to come. And speaking of Paul, Jesus said, He is my chosen vessel. He is my chosen vessel to take this to the Gentiles. Right? So diminishing, diminishing the writings of Paul and the other New Testament writers to be less authoritative than the words of Jesus Christ is the first step to apostasy. I guarantee you. I guarantee you, okay? Remember, all Scripture, all Scripture, all Scripture, okay? There is, you know, 2 Peter, um, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter writing again by inspiration, but also specifically referencing the writings of Paul. 2 Peter 3, 15, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to, hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And, rem- and remember, that Greek word for scripture, every time it's used in the New Testament, it's only ever translated as scripture. Okay? So Paul, equating the Old Testament and the New Testament as Scripture, Peter, by inspiration, talking about we don't have this from our own ideas, also elevating Paul's writing to Scripture, is very clear. The, the, the more we read and the more we look for the authority that they were given by the Holy Spirit, it's very, very clear. One of the, one of the favorite passages that we read around the, uh, you know, when we prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper when we read in 1 Corinthians 11, think about that passage and how that the, the typical reading from 1 Corinthians 11 begins with what? Now, what I received from the Lord, right? And, and our minds are thinking about the, Holy, the, the Lord's Spirit, the Lord's Supper. They're not thinking about necessarily the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in that moment, right? We are fixing our minds you know, on the Lord's Supper to do everything we can to get that right, Right? But let's not miss, when we read that passage, what I received from the Lord. And as we look for those, we see time and time again, time and time again, Paul writing and Peter writing and all of our New Testament writers writing about how they were given from the Holy Spirit the wisdom of God. Right? So again, we started this morning with the Genesis 1-1, that God is God and how important it is to build on that foundation, okay? Immediately connecting us to Jesus is God. Understanding that he and his authority 
is God's authority, right? Bringing us to the Holy Spirit being God, right? And the Holy Spirit, God breathing into men to write and record his will for us to have, right? Leading us to the truth that the Bible is the inspired word of God, right? That it really is everything we need to be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, and it is going to provide every answer to every spiritual question. Because again, as we talked about in, in our first lesson, what's the alternative? If we're not, if we're not going to recognize, if we're not going to recognize the scriptures as our authority, then we're really kind of done here, right? You sit across the table, you sit across the table with someone, and you know you're you're having a Bible study. And let's just say, even if it's not that formal, not not a formal Bible study, just a conversation comes up. If there is no agreement that the Bible is what it claims to be, if there is no agreement that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, you're really not going to move past that. Okay? Because why? If if I don't recognize the Bible as authoritative, then why do I need to? Why do I even need to listen to a a biblical argument now? Having said that, very quickly to add, that we do need to be able to give a defense, not just for our biblical worldview, but for the scriptures themselves, right? And that's obviously another class, but the apologetics of what we have is the inspired word, how it confirms everything that it claims to be, right? Things like the apologetics card that we have about, you know, scientific foreknowledge and fulfillment of scripture, you know, or I'm sorry, fulfillment of prophecy, you know, all of those things. We need to be able to have that as well, okay? But we have to hold, we have to hold that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is true, right? And I just, and again, there are multiple passages, multiple passages that speak to the inspiration of the Bible, okay? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 I like because, again, it's, it's absolute. It's either true or it's not, okay? We're going to continue uh, building this, uh, this worldview Next week, Lord willing. Um, so with that, I know the second bell is going to come. So we're going to we're going to put a peg there, right? Uh, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about truth in a post truth world next week. Uh, and if you don't know what a post truth world is, you do. I promise you do. You you maybe just have never heard it called that. Um, but again, we're filtering everything through the word. Uh, developing that biblical worldview. So that's what we're going to be discussing next week, if the uh, if the Lord wills. Let's finish with a word of prayer. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Father, you have revealed, uh, you have revealed your will to us. You have revealed who you desire for us to be, and you have given us the tools to do that, Father. Uh, most importantly, you have given us your word. You have also even given us a means by which um, amends can be made through our failings because of your Son and through your Son. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for his atoning work on the cross. We thank you for the resurrection that gives us that hope and assurance of eternal life, Father. Help us to submit to your will in all things. Help us to conform our will to yours, and help us to do all things to your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, Please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.